0: Hey, well, good morning, everybody. I left the mic all the way over there. Sorry about that. so good to see you. My name's Jay. I'm the director of worship here at City Church. If you're new, thank you for joining us. We begin each of our services with a call to worship. This morning, we're going to do something a smidge different. We're going to do a call and response call to worship based on Psalm 100. So would you stand with us? I'm going to read the leader portion. I would encourage you to read the uh, all portion. And uh, let's... Listen and prepare our hearts as we read together. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Let me pray. This is the day that you have made, Lord. Would you help us to rejoice in it and be glad? Would you remind us of the privileges that we enjoy as your people to come to you in these moments? to confess our sins, to receive forgiveness and to give it, to pray, to sing, to listen, to renew our fainting spirits, and to rest in all of your promises. Would you open our eyes to see you, Lord? Open our ears to hear your word. Would you visit us through your Holy Spirit, and would you help us to celebrate our faith this morning? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing together.
1: Wonderful of fear. Come behold his power and glory. Yet with confidence strong For the one who holds the heavens and commands the stars above, is the God who bends to bless us with an unrelenting love. Rejoice! Come and lift your hands. Of your king, and with trembling joy, we are children of the promise, the beloved of the Lord, one with everlasting kindness, all with sacrificial blood, bring Reconciliation to a world that longs to know the affections of a father who will never let them go. Rejoice, come and lift your carried up the hill he has walked this path before us he is walking with us still turning tragedy to triumph turning agony to praise there is blessing in the battle so take heart and stand amazed rejoice when you cry to him he your voice, He will wipe away your tears. Rejoice, in the midst of suffering, He will help you sing. Rejoice, come and lift your hands and praise your voice. He is worthy of all praise. your king and with trembling
2: I do.
3: the City Church. My name is Chipper. I'm one of the pastors here. We are a church aspiring to be an authentic community walking with God in our city. It is really good to see you. There is nothing I would rather be doing than what I'm doing right now. Worshiping with all of you wonderful people. If you don't feel the same, that's a fun little uh, cognitive dissonance for you to start your morning with. I do hope that I can uh, get to know you, that we can get to know you as a church family. There's a couple of ways that you can do that. One, um, come find me after the service. Say hello. I would love to talk to you um, and greet you. I'll also mention that we have connection cards. They exist in your bulletin. If you got a bulletin on your way in, you have one if you open that up. Um, we also have extra cards on the hospitality table in the back. And also, we have monthly bulletins. So get this. We do a weekly bulletin every week. You get it, a little bit of information. Monthly bulletin, more information. And that changes out every month. So I would encourage you to... Uh, take a look at that. You can also fill a connection card out online, uh, citychurchgmv.com slash connect. I think that's what it is. Uh, you can fill out the card on your phone, that kind of thing. We, we actually do pray for you. Believe it or not, if you fill that out and put prayer requests, which is what we really want you to do, we pray for you during our staff meeting. Uh, and then the physical cards you can just put in the seat pocket in front of you when you're done with those. We worship a generous God, part of our responsive worship, as the people of God is giving generously. Um, you can give online citychurchgnv.com/give, or you have a brown box in the back of the sanctuary that's available anytime, as well. Couple of announcements. Number one, our community groups, which are in many ways the relational lifeblood of our church, they are resuming. They go on a break during the month of June, basically, so our leaders and our hosts can rest, be replenished. These are groups of people that meet every week in people's homes. Uh, They talk about the scripture passages that we're preaching through on Sunday morning, how to apply that to the rhythms of everyday life, our work, our relationships, all of that. Uh, We eat a meal together. Well, we had to put that on hold for COVID, but it's coming back. Praise God. We eat together. uh, We pray together. We um, serve and support missionaries together. We serve our city together. Lots of things. So uh, some of them are beginning now. Some of them will begin in a couple of weeks. But we would love to get you connected if you're not yet connected, uh, so that when they do resume, you'll know where to go and who Uh, you're going to be hanging out with. And if you're in a group and you don't know if your group is starting now, ask your leader. They will tell you if it's starting now or uh, a couple weeks from now. Also, uh, we are doing a a mixer for um, City Church women and their friends and invited guests this coming Friday from 6 to 9. So we're trying to do some things that give um, uh, women here at City Church and also things for men and everybody, really, opportunity to reconnect since there's been so much disconnectedness, isolation this past year. So we would encourage you to come this Friday night six to nine um, you'll have some food together. I think it'll be a wonderful time you should have that information in your bulletin um, and it's on our website as well so we would love to see you there. I will tell you that we had uh, we did some child dedications in our nine a m service which I'm sad that you missed out on but I will tell you that it was a really wonderful time. We had three families, four total children uh, that we dedicated and that just means they take they come up here they take some vows and then we take a vow uh, congregationally um, and then we Uh, say a blessing over them, and we dedicate them, and it was just a delightful time. I want to mention why we do that. We do it for two reasons. Uh, Number one, it's it's a very public acknowledgement that at the end of the day, these children are not ours or the Lord's, and we're stewarding them. And then number two, it's an opportunity to, you know, faithfully confess that and profess that publicly, not only for the parents, but for all of you. So we have five vows that they say, and then one vow that all of you say. Scripture is a lot more communal than you might think, uh, especially in an age that is relatively individualistic. Um, and what that means is that we actually all play a role in caring for and raising these children up in the Lord, even if they're not our own children in that sense. So um, I would encourage you to find ways if you're not already to invest in the spiritual, physical and emotional well being of the children in our church. And there's a lot of ways that you can do that. You can sign up for the children's ministry. Look at that, huh? Um, but there's also ways that you can uh, come alongside parents um, babysitting, just encouraging words. Bring them a meal. There's a lot of things that you can do, seriously, and they they have major impacts, and you can really genuinely be a part of these children uh, knowing Jesus and and growing in Christ. So just as a word of encouragement, you can watch our live stream eh? that we recorded at the 9 a.m. service if you want to see these dedications take place. So look, you can do that. Um, Our scripture passage this morning is from the book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter 6. We're in a series right now in the books of Ezra, in Nehemiah, and um, basically, just to give you a very brief overview, um, it, it's a story of the Israelites who were, at one point, uh, living in the Promised Land. They got expelled from the Promised Land, really by the Lord, uh, because they were living in idolatry and injustice. So they got exiled in the Babylon. Ezra and Nehemiah, they're coming back. So they're coming back, really in three waves. Uh, we finished the book of Ezra. And now we're in the book of Nehemiah. Um, Zerubbabel and Ezra were the main two characters in the book of Ezra, and then Nehemiah, of course, is the, the main character, so to speak, in the book of Nehemiah. Ezra helped uh, get the temple, the Jerusalem temple, back online, so did Zerubbabel, and then uh, Nehemiah is helping the Israel, Israelites rebuild the Jerusalem wall. So, Nehemiah chapter 6, if you have a Bible, it would be great if you would pull that out and follow along with us. The passage will be up here on the screen as well. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter. And be blessed by it. So here's verse 1 of Nehemiah, chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Ahacafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why would the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from their work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sam had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that his work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah the son of Ere. And his son uh, Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Bechariah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to them. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the dedications that went on this morning um, of these precious children, and once again, we do commit them faithfully to you, recognizing that we are ultimately stewarding your children, um, and we need your help. We need your strength, and we we are pleading with you, Lord, that these children might grow up and, and know Christ, follow Jesus, tell others about him, and be invested, Lord, sacrificially in the spiritual, physical, and emotional well-being of the city or wherever they may go. We love you, Lord. We ask for the help of your spirit as we unpack this text. It's an unfamiliar time period to many of us, unfamiliar kind of sequence of events, and so we need extra help that we might actually understand this and apply it rightly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have this ongoing situation in our household right now uh, where suddenly one kid will declare to the other kid, that he or her is the winner of something you would not no- normally associate with having a winner. Uh, so like brushing your teeth, going to the bathroom, um, apparently you can win that now in our household. And the inevitable, very emotional response from the kid who is not victorious is, it's not a race. And then they will come to me and they will say, dad, tell him or her that it's not a race. So that is just on repeat right now in our household. In the spirit of that very competitive environment, I want to make my own declaration. I am the winner as it pertains to going back to many of our normal rhythms as a church family, as a country. My level of enthusiasm cannot be matched. Lockdowns and Zooms and doing those funky workouts in your living room, that was not for me. I was not into that, and so I'm very glad that a lot of those things are diminishing. However, as the winner, I will admit that I have a very significant concern. As we get back to things, including very important spiritual rhythms and initiatives that we modified or put on hold for almost a year, I'm concerned that we might do the Lord's work in our way rather than doing the Lord's work in His way. I am concerned that we will take up all of our our pent-up energy and zeal and simply start doing a lot of things, good things, biblical things, without relying upon the Lord and being led by him. That is my concern. The Israelite exiles, they wrestled with exactly this temptation as they were returning to Jerusalem. In fact, that's one of the reasons why Ezra went back, is to make sure they weren't just doing stuff, but they were worshiping in accordance to the law. And this is certainly a temptation now, as we do a different sort of rebuilding in a cultural climate that celebrates individualism and personal achievement and being busy just for the sake of busy and feeling really important. So we're going to spend our time this morning making the case that doing the Lord's work our way is kind of absurd. And at the end of the day, not really even the Lord's work. It's just kind of our own thing. And then we'll consider the compelling beauty and, and the efficaciousness of doing the Lord's work and the Lord's way. In case this language sounds familiar, uh, the Lord's work and the Lord's way is language that uh, Francis Schaeffer liked to use quite a lot. In fact, he used it in a sermon that you can still find in print today in a book called No Little People. Uh, it's easily one of the top five more influential sermons I ever read. He was considering a different text, but there's definitely thematic overlap in what I am preaching this morning. Two reflections that we will consider along the way here. Number one, we need more than we have. We need more than we have. And then number two, the Lord has what we need. God has what we need. We need more than what we possess, but God has what we need. We'll start with that first reflection. We need more than we have. If you're not already tired... I mean, if you're new here at Sea Church, this won't be the case. But listen, if you're, if you're not already tired of hearing about these guys, Sam Ballot and Tobiah and Geshem, maybe Nehemiah chapter 6 will finally get you there. These guys are exhausting. Seriously. This is Nehemiah's third encounter with these guys who are doing everything in their power to stop Nehemiah and the Israelites from rebuilding the wall. They represented Jerusalem's neighbors to the northeast and the northwest, In the southeast, and it turns out these neighbors really did not want Jerusalem to rebuild this wall and become a more formidable presence in the region. Siambalat and Tobiah and Geshen, they've already tried the insults and jeering, which ended up being very ineffective. They tried straight-up death threats. They plotted to kill the workers on the wall, and they were unsuccessful. Now we're on our third attempt, and they're trying a new strategy. In chapter 6, they're trying deceptive diplomacy, Deceptive diplomacy. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now when Sambal and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambal and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Hakafirim, by the way, was apparently this neutral location about 30 miles north northwest of Jerusalem, but of course, you already knew that, right? Question, important question, would you have taken this meeting? Would you have taken that meeting? Well, if you were doing the Lord's work your way with your own resources, there is a very decent chance that you would have done exactly that. You're tired of hearing about these guys. I'm tired of hearing about these guys, and I wasn't even there. You are tired of hearing about these guys. The people you're leading, that Nehemiah was leading, are tired of being threatened by them all the time. Why not sit down with your opponents, smoke a few cigars, ask how their kids are doing, and, and reach a compromise and be done with this? It's exhausting. You could become a hero in the eyes of your weary people. Plus, you've heard the hotels in Hekafirim are very nice, actually. It's like, it's like a little retreat. It'd be very restful. So in human terms, this actually seems practical. It seems wise, even. However, Nehemiah declined this invitation because he realized they intended to do him harm. What kind of harm? Maybe physical harm, but more likely harm to the rebuilding project that Nehemiah was leading. You can see this in verse 3. Simply leaving Jerusalem to meet with him would have divided his attention. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And of course, the terms of any compromise here would have for sure been favorable to Sambalat and Tamiah and Geshem. And detrimental to the Israelites. How did Nehemiah discern this? How did he know that they intended to do them harm? Well, their previous plot to kill people was probably a clue. But more importantly, and we'll get back to this later, there appears to have been this divinely guided watchfulness on Nehemiah's part. A divinely guided prayerful watchfulness that helped him discern that this is no good. And we will come back to that in a little bit. So after Nehemiah declined this invitation four times, told you these guys were just on it. They were ready to go. Four times he declined this. You see this in verses 4 through 5. Sam Ballet extended a fifth invitation but this time with a very manipulative open letter that you can read about in verses 6 through 7. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you, that is Nehemiah, and the Jews intend to rebel, that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. So in other words, uh, Nehemiah, if you don't meet with us, we have this feeling that the king of Persia, who is, of course, in authority, he's the ruler of the empire, we have this feeling that the king of Persia is going to hear a report that you're claiming to be the king of Judah. And we don't think he's going to like that very much, so why don't we meet and talk about things? Wink, wink, wink. Now we learn that Sam Ballat was more than willing to make false accusations, that could have tarnished Nehemiah's reputation and enraged the king. And this was a particularly intelligent accusation that could have gained traction because the Israelites were expecting a messianic king. But was Nehemiah actually trying to gain power? Absolutely not. And in fact, his behavior indicated that he was still loyal to King Artaxerxes. So instead of caving... To stand ballots, very manipulative demands. Nehemiah denied the accusations. You can see that in verse 8. Stayed the course. And then verse 9 asked the Lord. He prayed to the Lord to strengthen his hands. So he he had this shimmering opportunity to quiet the noise in the system. Since this fifth invitation, it was an open letter, people other than Nehemiah would have seen it, including Israelites. He had an opportunity to quiet the noise. In the system, but instead, he faithfully stuck with the more difficult and, frankly, dangerous plan, and he asked the Lord for help. Strengthen our hands. Strengthen my hands. Not to be deterred, and this is when the passage gets fascinating. Sanballat, this time with Tobiah, he hatched an even more cunning plan. Definitely his finest effort yet. And you see it in verse 10. After declining the invitations... Nehemiah went to the home of Shemaiah the prophet. And the occasion for this visit is not explicit in this text, but it's implied that Shemaiah requested Nehemiah's presence and cited this confinement, maybe a disability, as the reason why Nehemiah needed to come to him rather than the other way around. And to the onlooker, it would have looked like Nehemiah was coming to Shemaiah the prophet to get some spiritual counsel. However, Shemaiah had a very different plan in mind. This is what he said. The new Maya. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they, that is Ballat and other enemies, are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. So I have another question. Would you have made your way into that temple? Let's check our pride at the door and say, probably, yeah. hmm. We would have. You have a Jewish prophet telling you to do so, telling you that it's completely okay, legit, just go into the temple. And your life, apparently, according to this prophet, is in danger. So it seems entirely justifiable to take shelter in God's temple, especially if you're doing the Lord's work, which Nehemiah was certainly doing because he was orchestrating the wall rebuild. But Nehemiah did not take this advice. He didn't. Why? Because he knew the scriptures. He knew God's word. In his case, this would have been the law of Moses. And the scriptures are very clear that only priests were permitted to go into the inner parts of the temple, and even then only at very specific times. He knew that. Thus, this response from Nehemiah in verse 11 <clears throat> Should a man such as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. He knew the word, he declined the invitation. And boy, was that the right call, because it turns out, and this is, this is wild. It turns out, as you see in verses 12 through 14, that Sambalat and Tobiah paid Shemaiah to give a false prophecy that would scare Nehemiah into violating the law so they could taunt him for doing so, if he lived to tell about it and ruin his reputation. I mean, goodness! This is, this is elite opposition right here. This is devious. It's, it's absolutely cunning. These days I'm getting a very fresh look at all of the Disney villains, three children, natural kind of thing to happen. Personally, I have Scar at the top of the list. I kind of thought that was obvious, but then the Ursula people are very passionate and we will tell you about it. So it's either Scar, maybe Ursula, we can talk about it. But Sam Ballot and Tobiah and Gesham are kind of next level. They're in their own category. They're relentless. Except, they aren't the real villains, are they? And this is really important. Satan, that is the devil, and the spiritual forces of evil are the true enemy, not the people. Sambal and Shammai and company, of course, they're morally culpable for what they're doing, but Satan is the grand opposer. He's the grand opposer, doing whatever he can to deceive and destroy and oppose the mission of God. That's what he does. I mean, consider Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. And then if you go down to verse 16, it talks about the evil one slinging flaming arrows in our direction. It's true today, and it was true in Nehemiah's day as well. I wonder if you can see where this is going. Here's where it's going. We have absolutely no chance out there without God. Not a chance in the world. We have no chance out there without God, even if we're doing the Lord's work. There's too much opposition. There's too much, you know, this, this devious, cunning opposition. Clearly not to mention the matter of our own sinfulness. I mean, raise your hand if you're really confident in your own ability to uh, detect false prophecy from an assumably trustworthy prophet who's been paid off by your opponents. Everyone, like, yep, I'd be on top of that. I don't think so. We need more than we have. We need more resources. We need more wisdom. We need more power. Listen, we can resolve to be Faithful, ethical, evangelistically zealous employees in the marketplace. We can sign up for the children's ministry team. We can pursue vocational. We can be missionaries across the globe. We can sacrificially pursue the interests of widows and orphans and sojourners and the poor and even visit prisoners on the side. We can do all of that. But unless we do it in the Lord's way, relying upon his strength and following his will, we have no chance. At all. We would take the seemingly expedient diplomatic meeting. Every time. We would make concessions to protect our reputation. We would run into the temple headlong on the advice of a prophet who's been paid off in order to hide from bad guys that aren't even coming. All of that would seem so wise in our own eyes. And then we would get off track. We would get overwhelmed. We would get exhausted. Maybe we would crash and burn entirely. Or maybe we would have some measure of success. But at that point, we're not even really doing the Lord's work anymore. We're just doing our own thing and our own power. And here's the bad news about this. This happens, doing the Lord's work in our way. It happens way more often than we would like to admit. In fact, it's so commonplace that Francis Schaeffer put it like this, very strong terms, he said, the central problem in our age, the central problem, not just a problem, the central problem in our age is not liberalism or modernism nor the threat of communism nor the threat of rationalism, you can kind of tell when he was writing here, he says the real problem is this, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ individually or corporately tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. I want to say something rather uncomfortable, and do not worry, I am looking at myself. I'm looking at myself along with all of you. When we hear followers of Jesus talking about how overwhelmed and burnt out they are, which has been often this past year, I would say, very often the identified culprit is external circumstances. and Accordingly, there can be anger, there can be bitterness toward God for giving them more than they can bear. You know, I'm trying to be faithful, God. I'm trying to be obedient, but you're making it very hard. This is too much. And listen, I, I have been there I know those emotions like the back of my hand, and life can indeed be a lot to handle sometimes. It has been this year. But here's the thing, and here's a hard thing, but I also think there's a, there's a glimmer of encouragement in this as well. More often than not, the, the burnout, the bitterness, etc., it's actually not about the specific circumstances. It's about trying to do the Lord's work in our own way in our own power with our own resources. And I, I say this with grace, with zero condemnation, because I am passionately concerned that a lot of, a lot of people are trying to change or, or to wait out their circumstances instead of trying to change their posture toward those circumstances by beginning to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And now is a really great time for reflection and reorientation as we resume some of our normal rhythms as we try to kind of go, 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 and and get running again. That would be a great time to avoid stepping in the same puddles we were stepping in before COVID, before all of us kind of got shut down, you might say. So I want to talk about the alternative here. And let's talk about why that alternative is so compelling, so beautiful. And it brings us to our second reflection. God has what we need. So we need more than we have. Good news. God has what we need. Verse 15 states, in a very straightforward way, an accomplishment that was remarkable to the point of being miraculous. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Ewol, in 52 days. I mean, where do we even start with that? Where do we even start with that? It is stunning that the Persian king Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah permission to rebuild this wall in the first place. That is incredible. It is stunning that they were able to acquire enough supplies to rebuild the wall. It is stunning that Nehemiah was able to rally so much support that they completed this project in 52 days. It is stunning that Nehemiah and the Israelites finished this project despite relentless opposition from their opponents. And you know what? Other people were stunned before us, namely those opponents, so much so that they could see exactly what was going on. You see it in verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. I mean, that ding, ding, yes, there it is. Even their opponents could tell that this was a supernatural undertaking. There's no way they were doing this on their own. Yes, the project was the Lord's work. The impulse to rebuild this wall didn't come from Nehemiah, it came from the Lord. Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2 make that really clear. Yes, this was the Lord's work, but just as importantly, Nehemiah and the Israelites did the Lord's work very specifically in the Lord's way. That is, they did it according to his plan and his guidance and his power, not their own resources. They rebuilt the wall with the Lord's help, not human grit, and human determination and human wisdom. Energy was certainly expended. No doubt they were tired. But it was energy subjected to the Lord's way of doing things. And it's a really good way they went this way, because otherwise they wouldn't have completed the wall, at least not in the way that they did it, not in the time frame that they did it. And that was clear even to their opponents. What are some of the signs in this text? that Nehemiah is orchestrating this project with the Lord's help and the Lord's way rather than doing it on his own, with his own resources. What are some of the signs? We've already talked about some of them. Sign number one is prayerfulness. That might even be the primary sign. This, this watchful mood of prayer. Recall verse 9 as Nehemiah received the fifth invitation from Ballot. What did he do? He prayed. He said, but now, o God, strengthen my hands. Or how about verse 14, which is fascinating. It's, it's a different sort of prayer in which Nehemiah leaves this matter of justice for his enemies in, in God's hands. He says, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid, basically saying, they've done me so much wrong, Lord, I'm going to commit that to your hands though, as far as how you're going to deal with them. Of course, we've seen a whole lot more examples of prayer throughout the book of Nehemiah, book of Ezra Shute. Nehemiah chapter 1 is basically a prayer. So the bottom line here is Nehemiah commune with the Lord through prayer, and that included this unique, very prayerful vigilance. You might say watchfulness, to quote Colossians chapter 4, that he doubled down on when it was time for big decisions and when he was afraid when crises were on the horizon. When you get busy, it's easy to drop prayer. It's easy to drop spiritual disciplines. Nehemiah doubled down. Sign number two, a very high regard for Scripture, and we caught that already, didn't we? Even though a Jewish prophet, again, let's check our pride. We would have fallen for this every single time. A fellow kinsman prophesied, hey, go into the temple. It'll be fine. Even though a Jewish prophet told him to take shelter in the temple, Nehemiah prioritized Scripture even over this prophecy. That's how high he regarded Scripture. And that meant, of course, knowing it in the first place. You can't regard it well and apply it unless you know it, so he had to know it. But more than knowing it, he faithfully applied it when the prophetic exhortation came to conflict with God's Word. Sign number three. You notice to humility not just in this chapter, but throughout the book of Nehemiah. He wasn't about himself, he was about God, and he was about the people of God. And he was pouring himself out for them. And he pressed on with this wall despite very clear threats on his life. He was putting his life on the line, and despite possessing some authority from the Persians, he eventually became the governor of Judah. He didn't lord it over the people, he actually kept working with them, he worked alongside them. Conversely, People who are pursuing the Lord's work in their own way will tend to be very prideful, tend to be very self-interested. They will desire positions of power and influence, and they will desire all kinds of credit and affirmation, actually to the point where credit and affirmation become necessary fuel for their work. They can't do it unless they're being praised and affirmed. Sign number four would be trust. Did Nehemiah prefer Working environment that he experienced when he was rebuilding the wall? Absolutely not. Are you kidding? No one wants to deal with this kind of endless opposition. It's hard enough to build a darn wall, but you've got these three musketeers that are just absolutely on you all day, every day. No one wants to work with one hand and hold a sword in the other, which is basically what Nehemiah and the Israelites had to do because of this opposition. But he did it anyway. <laughs> Trusting that the Lord knew what he was doing. And you know what? The Lord did know what he was doing. And the wall was finished. Notice that signs number one and number two are directly related to number three and four. Prayerfulness, high regard for scripture, directly, directly related to humility and trust. We're only going to humbly trust our God and do things his way rather than our way if we are prayerful and if the words of Scripture are hidden in our hearts and just coursing through our veins. That's the only way we're going to do this. We're only going to trust God and obey Him if we're hearing from Him and giving the Holy Spirit who lives in us the opportunity to fill us with His power and to give us this kind of godly discernment that we've been saying. It doesn't come out of thin air. And you do remember the Holy Spirit, right? Usually we speak in terms of The grace of God in Christ when we're talking about salvation. And that's absolutely right. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God the Father made his Son, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yes, yes, amen. But there's another grace of God in Christ as well. And that, it actually involves Jesus graciously giving us something even beyond salvation. The Holy Spirit. This is John 16, 7. This this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Listen to this. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, which is a fascinating statement. What? It's to your advantage that I go away, and this is why. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then in the book of Acts, chapter 1, right before Jesus' ascension, so this is after his resurrection, right before his ascension, Jesus ordered his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until they received the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, don't even think about going out on mission. Don't even think about doing the Lord's work, unless you're going to do it in the Lord's way with his power. Don't even think about it. Which is interesting, because I mean the mission was kind of urgent. You wouldn't expect, hey, wait around for a little bit. It was urgent. But they had no chance out there without the Holy Spirit. I had to carry out the Lord's work, the Lord's mission, in the Lord's way. So hear this. This is my plea if you hear one thing this morning. Hear this. Let's please not run back into things unless we're doing them in the Lord's way with his help. Please. This would be a lovely time to take some inventory. Which of these signs, if, if any, do we detect in our own lives? You know, posture of prayerfulness, high regard for scripture, humility, trust. If any of these things is missing, you know, perhaps all you needed was a gentle reminder. Perhaps all you needed was a little bit of, you know, sprucing up, a little bit of summer cleaning here. And remember that this is actually, this is a really restful reminder. A very restful reminder. Scrambling around, in your own power, that is a journey. It is fraught with anxiety and burnout. Walking with Jesus will still make you tired, but doing it in your own resources and your own power, that'll burn you out. That'll fry you every single time. So it's it's a paradox. So on one hand, Jesus bids us come and die, but it's actually a restful coming and (laughs) dying. It's, it, it's fascinating to think about it that way. However, if we're not detecting these signs at all, if upon review, and often it helps to bring other people into this process to see, upon review we're not detecting prayerfulness, and we're, and we're not detecting a high regard for Scripture, and we're looking at our lives and you're like, you know what, no, I am a self-interested person to the max, and I don't think I'm trusting the Lord at all, I'm trusting it myself. If that's what we're seeing there might also be some significant unbelief lurking beneath the surface at the end of the day. As Francis Schaeffer would put it, if if these signs are wholly missing, if we're looking at it and we're like, you know what, there's really not much of a spiritual pulse here, we might need to ask ourselves whether or not we genuinely believe in God, or if it's more likely the case that we've really just been going through the motions or adopted the trappings of Christian culture without really believing in the God behind it at all? Those are hard questions. Those are uncomfortable questions. But the time is is right to ask them, especially now. Especially in an age when doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way is increasingly foreign and unpopular. Never been a better time to be real. Never been a better time to be honest and ask ourselves, what do we even believe? about the Lord. And if you detect some latent unbelief and you want to, to resurrect your relationship with the resurrected Jesus, man, would you recommit to not only doing the Lord's work, but to actually doing that work in the Lord's way. Prayerfully, high regard for Scripture in which you are immersed in it produce ultimately a posture of other-focused humility and trust in the Lord. Amen. Every week at City Church, we participate in the Lord's Supper together. As it would happen, it's actually an opportunity to um, do the Lord's work in the Lord's way so to speak, because what we're doing here in this time of remembering is actually something that the Lord Jesus commanded us to do. For the sake of not intellectual roteness, but actually for spiritual transformation, we really believe that the Holy Spirit of God works in our remembering in such a way that we'd actually leave for change, that we could be nourished, that we could be encouraged, that we could be convicted. So that was my prayer for us as we gather and participate accordingly you're a follower of Jesus, I hope that you come and participate. Uh, yes, your sin is very great, but Jesus is a, is a far greater Savior. Please remember that. If you're here and you would not say that you're a follower of Jesus, thank you for being here. City Church is a space for people of all kinds, from all walks of life, including people that don't know what they believe, that are journeying and asking hard questions. This is a space for you, and I hope that we can dialogue. I hope that we can have conversations. I hope that you'll come talk to me. I hope that you'll get in touch. Send an email and stick around. If that describes you, though, instead of partaking in a meal that you're like, yeah, I don't know if I believe in this, we would encourage you to reflect, to meditate on what we've just been talking about this morning. And I hope that you see how dependent upon the Lord followers of Jesus really are. It's not us. What we're doing here is not in our strength. At least it shouldn't it be. If it is, it's a fool's errand. I'm going to set the table for communion, and then there will be a deacon or an elder on either side of this table um, with a basket and some prepackaged communion kits. Whenever you're ready, after the prayer, you can simply come up and take, oh, excuse me, an elder or deacon will hand you a packet, or drop it in your hands. There's also a basket on that table, hospitality table in the back. Um, you can go over there if you'd prefer, and simply take one out of the basket. And there will be plenty of space for you to reflect. There will be a psalm that's for your reflection and for con- contemplation. Then after that, a little bit more music before we close. So that's what I'll do. I'll set the table, I'll pray, then you'll, you can come and gather the elements as you desire. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was to be betrayed, uh, shared a meal with his disciples. And during that meal, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this whenever you eat of it in remembrance of me. And then in a similar manner, after the meal, Jesus took the cup. And as he poured it, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. And Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Because we worship a resurrected Savior who ascended into the presence of God and he is coming back. And in the meantime, he's given us some things to do. He's given us some work. He's also given us the Holy Spirit so that we can do this work in the Lord's way and his power, under his guidance. Let's pray together. Father, we are delighted that you have given us this space uh, to remember, to be changed. I pray for necessary course corrections. Lord, if we have been buzzing around, especially recently, in our own strength, with our own power, kind of being busy bodies, um, without carving out space for the Holy Spirit to really work and for us to listen, I pray that you would convict us And point us to the far better way. And that this act of communion would be part of a commitment going forward to be more prayerful, um, to be more um, immersed in your word, talking about it with other believers, thinking critically about how to apply it. I pray that we wouldn't just be rushing around, that we'd really be resting in you, Lord. Your way is hard, but it's also restful. I do pray that where we're convicted, that we would bring that sin into the light, and we confess it repent of it, and enjoy the grace of God in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If like you like prayer after uh, communion, um, the people that are serving communion will be up in the lobby. After they finish serving, you can simply walk back into the lobby, and they'd love to pray for you.
0: with us. Let's keep singing together. Grace of God,
1: the grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea, and I am safe on the solid ground. The Lord is my salvation.
0: I will
1: not fear, I will not fear when darkness falls. His strength will help me scale these walls.
0: Glory be to God.
3: worshiping with you this morning. Thank you for being here. If you're new, thank you in particular. Love to meet you. Uh, Feel free to come say hello. Hear this benediction, and then we'll sing the doxology uh, together. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.
1: and Holy Ghost. Amen.
0: Amen. Go in peace.